Greetings fellow insomniacs and welcome to another Creature Features flashback. Uh, as I had mentioned in the Caroline Williams episode, we are going to be looking at women in horror through the month of February, which means, uh, you know, I'm going to be catering the flashbacks specifically to uh, interviews that I've done with women in the world of horror. And uh, this episode, I, I had a real fun time talking with Betsy Baker, who was one of the stars of Evil Dead. We talk all about Evil Dead. We talk about her career. And it's, you know, it's an interesting conversation. And it's always, to me, uh, hold on, ginger shot time. Oh, Lordy Jesus. It's always fun to me to be able to get an insight into films that were huge influences to me, and Evil Dead is absolutely on that list. It's a, there's there's a few films that I watched really, really early on in my horror fandom, and, and Evil Dead was one that just scared the fucking balls off me. A fun story this past October. Uh, my oldest son, he's 12 now, uh, he had decided he wanted to watch fucking horror movies, you know, because it's Halloween and, you know, you, you want to be like everybody else and watch horror movies in October. So I was like, fuck it, yeah, man, sure, we, we can do that, I, I'll be your huckleberry. Um, here's the thing, though, it's not about watching horror films. It's about the conditions that you put yourself in when you watch those horror films. So I put on Evil Dead. I turned off all the lights and I made everybody else leave the room. And he had to watch it in the dark by himself. He made it about mm, halfway through. When shit started really going down, he was like, okay, I get it. And tapped the fuck out. And, uh, for any of you parents who are dealing with prepubescent boys who are showing interest in wanting to get interest in horror, what you do is you scare the shit out of them. It'll dissuade them for a little while, but it'll also give them an admiration for the classics. And, you know, context is important when watching horror. If, if anything is taken away from this episode... Hopefully it's something that Betsy said, but, uh, you know, just here, that's a little bit of free parenting advice that you didn't ask for. It's an unsolicited parenting advice, kind of like, uh, never mind. This is, this is women in horror month. We're going to keep it classy. <laughs> so, uh, just so you know, the Rob Zombie episode will be releasing this Friday. Um, for any of you that are interested in hearing that episode one of the Rob Zombie episode will be up on Friday and there's going to be some more women in horror episodes uh, releasing this week so definitely after you're done with this keep locked into the stream because I've got tons of interviews that I'm going to be unleashing but with all that said with all that out of the way it's now time for my conversation with Betsy Baker in this Creature Features flashback on geeksoftheindustry.com.
gonna get you, not another peep, time to go to sleep, we Industry. Ladies and gentlemen, you're about to witness some scenes from the next attraction to play this. This picture, truly one of the most unusual ever filmed, contains scenes which under no circumstances should be viewed by anyone with a heart condition or anyone who is easily a We urgently recommend that if you are such a person or the parent of a young or impressionable child now in attendance, that you and the child leave the auditorium for the next... Features, a horror discussion from geeksoftheindustry.com, and now your host, Chunky Larry. Greetings, fellow insomniacs, and welcome to a very special episode of the Creature Features podcast on geeksoftheindustry.com. I'm your host, my name is Chunky Larry, and if you hear this giddiness in my voice, it's because, uh, quite frankly, I'm doing something that, in a million years, I never thought I'd be able to do. And sometimes I say that, and it's, it's always true, but this is absolutely one of those moments. When I was a young man, and I'd started to discover the horror genre, I became obsessed with just consuming, and on... A summer day, very much like today, I had some friends over, we were getting ready to camp in the backyard, because that's what you do when you live in the city, and before we went outside to uh, go sleep in a tent, we put on a film by Sam Raimi called The Evil Dead, and needless to say, by the time that the camera rushes into Bruce Campbell's face, nobody wanted to go outside, nobody wanted any part of the backyard, and... It's a film that has stuck and sat with me for the rest of my life. I'm now a full-fledged adult who's uh, working these these films into the lives of my children and trying to scare them from the backyard as well. And I have the opportunity to speak with one of the titular characters of this franchise, the, the, the film that started it all. And I'm just, I'm happier than a clam in a clam bake. I don't know if a clam would be happy during a clam bake because I'm being eaten. But that's where I'm at. Ladies and gentlemen, I have the privilege and honor to speak with a singer, an actress, and just an all-around amazing person. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Betsy Baker, how you doing? Well, I, I'm doing great. I've actually never been introduced like that. <laughs> Thank you very much. And, uh... 
think it's happier than a clam. I don't know if it's happier than a clam and a clam bake, but you know, whatever. <laughs> I think that was a great introduction. So thank you. Well, <laughs> these are the things that I try to do. Uh, I I have to just really emphasize how amazing this is for me because. Uh, I, I can't even undersell this. This is, uh, for me, one of the scariest films I'd ever seen. Obviously, Nightmare on Elm Street goes up there. Um, Friday the 13th, uh, th those are the obvious ones. But Evil Dead is one of the most terrifying films. And, you know, the, the latter films kind of go into a bit campier of territories. But, and there's there's a level of camp in, in the original Evil Dead. But... There's there's just something inherently dark about that first film, and to be able to speak to anybody involved with this film is just a huge honor. And I want to find out more about you and the journey that it took to get to the cabin in Tennessee, and uh, just find out a little bit more about you as a person, because... You know, everybody's heard the stories of, you know, the, the camera and, you know, how they set it up to a two by four and Sam Raimi's obsession with the car and all of these things. But there, there are elements of this film that without those elements, the film wouldn't be what it is. And you're absolutely one of those. I, I really look at your character as kind of the heart of the overall series and, and it, and it plays a stronger point in the first film, but it's still, sticks in there uh, to the point that they on two separate occasions have two other actresses uh, play your character and I, and I believe that that was because you had uh, you were pregnant during the second one correct yeah that's absolutely correct I, I think you pretty much know about everything yeah yeah I, I I've obsessed over this series but I but what I want to find out about more is kind of your journey to get there because I know that you had started very early on uh, with performance and uh, I, you know I know it's a cliche question but what is the what's the initial kernel of your drive to want to perform Wow um, well I guess I just even as a little girl you know when I was taking cap classes and ballet classes and you know the like I just I just liked entertaining and I, I don't know if it was um, just making people smile I guess because when you're five or six or seven and, and you're asked when somebody comes over if you would play that piano piece that you've been working so hard on and then no matter how bad it was of many mistakes you made, or it was not on tempo, they still clapped and said, oh my gosh, that was amazing, just to make you as a child feel good. And I guess that still holds true for people in entertainment or who want to express themselves in that way. So I guess that is primarily um, what it was. And, and I followed through and did a lot of uh, theater and acting and singing and piano playing. Um, throughout high school and college, you know, I received my degree in um, classical voice and theater education, and um, it just, I just enjoyed it, and I loved the work, and I loved the discipline, 
um, because it is a disciplined profession. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love the work that you had to organically go through and find the reason why you were doing it, and I still do. So I think that was the originating kernel as a young child. That would be the answer. And I know you worked a lot in theater, uh, you know, working your way towards what you ultimately pursued being television and film. Uh, How much of that do you feel still kind of comes up when you're working on something like uh, the Rush Hour TV show? Do you do you find yourself still accessing those those early teachings from the work that you were doing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, everything from listening to the director or the boss or whoever's in charge and also keeping, keeping track or, or you know, uh, also acknowledging that there's people who are lighting you, mm-hmm. people who are miking you, people who are recording your sound, watching every move you make. So while you're focusing and, and keeping your eyes on the director and listening to his directions, you're aware of the fact that sound man needs to know what you're going to do next, the lighting guy needs to know that you're going to move, um, the prop guy knows that you're going to put something up or, uh, you know, pick something up really fast, really hard, and, and you know, might put it down really hard on the table, and so it's huge work in progress for everybody, not just for that one actress or actor in front of the camera or on a stage, even, because on a stage that, you know, stage manager has to really believe you're going to remember to cross over to the couch and over to the door at the exact same time that the lights go out. So it's, it's all, you know, a work in progress for everybody, whether you're on stage or in front of a, a camera. Now, uh, kind of comparatively with the... Because I, I, I've always felt, uh, you know, in terms of performance on stage as opposed to performance on camera there's a little bit of wiggle room and you can you know correct me if i'm wrong on this in terms of being able to almost not not so much improvise but embellish when you're on stage as opposed to when you're on camera because when you're on camera you know it's it's a frame that you're in you have to operate within that frame but when you're on stage you can kind of go with the rhythm of the you know not so much you know your movements or per se but uh your performance to project that performance to a stage and do you find that one is easier to do than the other or is it still just kind of uh, they all have their own little things that make them more difficult that aren't necessarily the same for the other good question and I think that um, I think on stage it's not so much that you have more liberty it's just that you have to remember that you're in a bigger much 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 bigger space mm-hmm. um, you're in a much bigger space that you need to project your body movements more um, so that people 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 feet away can still see the reason why you scratched your head at that moment um, and you also have to uh, project more verbally and use more strength. And it, sometimes people say this makes it that much more grand. But in reality, it just makes it more easier for the audience to perceive and understand because they are so far away. You know, I have 
filmed scenes where I'm on camera where I'm whispering and I, I can't blink an eye or I, I realize that the camera is literally might be 12 inches from me. That's a huge difference from uh, the grand physical movement um, that you might be able to see 80 feet away. So it's, that's challenging to me and I, and believe me, you sometimes forget. <laughs> you sometimes forget that you're doing a scene on camera and you only need to speak so loudly because the boom guy and the sound man are right there. So you don't need to project. You can just speak in your normal voice. And um, you can sometimes forget. And then you just have to do it again. That's, that's the other beauty of you know, doing film and camera work, if you're given that luxury of time and money, is that you can do it again if there's a mistake. Um, on stage, that's it. You know, you drop your drawers and you just do it. And uh, very, very rarely is there time to go back and correct it. Only at rehearsal. Yeah, it's not like you can tell the crowd that's sitting in the audience, hey, um, would you guys mind if I just did that one one more time? I wasn't really feeling it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And when you, when, when you have a situation where you do something that doesn't necessarily jibe with what your intent was, are you in your head at that point when you, you're in that performance, you know that you, you know, flubbed a line or you didn't say it in a way that you wanted to say it, but you have to keep going, is, is that something that's playing in your head and kind of throws your rhythm off or... I mean, on, sta you mean on, on stage. On stage? On stage? Uh, yeah, but again, there are probably maybe 10, 15 other people who are, are relying on you to make that movement correctly or as it hurts or say that line. So you've got to somehow immediately help them out. You've really uh, fluffed it up. Uh, you've got to help them out uh, to correct that in a most subtle way so the audience, you know, feels comfortable with it. Um, you somehow got to um, get back on track, and so you're, yeah, your your thoughts are always to do with what we practice so that it doesn't confuse or, or, or um, you know, shove off track anybody else, mm -hmm. from the lighting guy to the other actor on stage. So that's constantly, uh, I mean, both in camera and in film, that's constantly a situation as well. Because on camera, even, your other actor is waiting for that exact cue or that exact uh, movement in order for them to react. So, yeah, it's, it's, to me, it's, hopefully, it's always on my mind. And in terms of in a situation, because, again, um, this is a conversation that uh, comes up a lot whenever I speak to somebody that's worked on stage as well in screen, uh, that, you know, a lot of stage performance is energy and you know feeding off the energy of not only the person that you're acting opposite of but feeding off of the energy of the crowd and the reception of the things that you're doing and when you're on set working on a film kind of I, this is something that's always been interesting to me is creating that energy when you're working off of just the camera or like a tennis ball or you know something like that where you're having to eyeline, but you're not really getting that that same energy. How do you create that energy? Well, uh, that's a good question. It, to me, it, you just 
do the best we can. Yeah, there is an there is a different energy of hearing uh, either an audience laugh or hearing an audience um, be swept to silence. But I I have um, I have experienced it on camera as well when there's just 15 or 20 people in a room, meaning hair, makeup director, assistant director, um, you know, whatever, and you you can sense most times or sometimes hopefully can sense that you've you've got your audience or you or you've got the scene in command and um and a lot of times that essence is just as powerful in a small room where you're filming or taping than it is on a big stage. So but yeah, there's there's there is a huge difference and I it's a good good question. And I know that you did your studies at the uh, at Michigan State University, and was it always kind of your your long term goal to move into theater? Uh, I mean, film and television, or was theater kind of where you thought you were going to make your bones? Well, actually, at uh, 21, 22 years old, I didn't really know whether I was going to do. I was thinking about doing things, hoping I could. I actually started out at university as a music therapy student. Um, I wanted, I enjoyed music, mm-hmm. um, and I felt at the time with the little that I knew that perhaps I could be of help to people with illnesses or disabilities and combine music with it, which is um, their finding, of course, huge and tremendously helpful. However, I clearly um, discovered at the beginning of my freshman year in college that that is something I did not want to do. Um, I didn't enjoy the music classes per se, just me, and I was missing theater. And somebody in the music department must have sensed that, and I think I know who it was. It was a professor. And he came to me and he um, said he'd been contacted by the theater department and they were looking for someone who could sing to audition for uh, a musical they were going to have in the fall. And he said, well, I suggest, why don't you go over there and meet with this professor and, you know, ask him if you might have the opportunity to audition mm-hmm. for it. And so I did. I was in the next uh, couple of months, I changed my major and moved from the School of Music to the School of Theater because I. I realized that I missed theater and acting at this creative forces, and I went and then proceeded to get a theater education degree. Not that I ended up, that I thought I wanted to end up being a theater education or a teacher at high school for the rest of my life, but I wanted um, some of that experience, but I really, uh, um, by the time I was in the middle of my freshman year of college, I knew that I wanted to gear my education more towards theater than music as a primary school. And that being kind of your focus in terms of your education, when was it that television and theater, films started to seem like a an appliable source for you? Well, interestingly enough, after graduation from Michigan State as a theater education major, um, I took a time off to uh, not apply for teaching jobs 
uh, not accept any teaching jobs. I'm not going to graduate from theater, and I ended up taking a job as a singer. So go figure that. <laughs> the thing you tried yeah. to get away and from. See, after eight or nine months of that, and um, I, you know, said, now what do we do? And I ended up deciding going to city of Detroit, Michigan. Um, being from Michigan, I've never lived in Detroit. I've never been to Detroit. But I knew that uh, I had friends there. And um, I knew that it would still be in the state where I could, you know, be somewhat close to family. And I knew that they were doing, it was a large enough city at the time in the, in the late 70s that they were doing a lot of uh, training and industrial films. You know, for all the auto industry. Mm-hmm. And I knew that they were doing a lot of those, and I knew that they were doing a lot of regional and local and some nationwide commercials because the auto industry. So I took a gamble, and um, I moved there uh, with hardly any money, and I just started investigating um, agencies and commercials and um, industrials, and was hired for a number of training films and industrials, and it was actually it was my first experience in front of a camera. And then I was hired for a number of commercials, and that was fabulous. Um, and it was a great opportunity to learn about cameras and film work and uh, commercials and be forgiven. Meaning it was still a small town for that make mistakes and learned and improved, you could still be hired again and again and again. I made a number of industrial training films, which was really good background um, learning experience for me and commercials. And at one time, um, CBS came to Detroit and they were hiring additional actors for a movie that they were going to film in Detroit called Word of Honor, and it starred um, Paul Malden, Rue McClanahan, Ron Silver, um, so many others, and I was cast as uh, John Malkovich. I wasn't cast as John Malkovich. I was cast as John Malkovich's fiance, and I was also the daughter of Carl um, Malden and Rue McClanahan. I mean, seriously? Is that is that intimidating when you are you, at this point you've worked on these these films for you know the uh, instructional videos and some commercials but then you're in there with a Carl Malden is is that something that's intimidating for you or do you just kind of rely on what got you to the game? Uh, I think it's some of both. I mean, I think it's I must have gotten this because I worked hard and it was what they wanted. But intimidating? Yeah. Every single day, every single moment I came on, it was intimidating. But I also took it as a great learning experience. Not unlike Evil Dead, but just in a different way. I did Evil Dead shortly before we did Word of Honor. Mm-hmm. Um, a totally different experience. Um, as everybody can understand. I mean, it's been no few years that Evil Dead was a very... You know, we were all young people, very small crew. We had nobody, you know, making a pot of coffee in the middle of the night. You know, we had no heat in the cabin. We had, the conditions were unbelievable. And yet we were literally, it's a cliche, but we were all a bunch of young kids trying to make a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, when you do something, when they bring in motorhomes and production, you know, uh, trailers and, and they bring in celebrities, and they were celebrities. I mean, Carl Malden, John Malkovich, Carl, you know, Rue McClanahan, Ron Silver. It, it, it was just incredible. Yeah. Um, there's a huge difference. Everything is a learning experience, from the from the small industrial films to the commercials to um, I, I did a lot of auto shows, live narration, all over the United States. That's a huge learning experience. Um, you're basically on stage six hours doing the same five or six minute feel to different people every ten minutes. Um, so, but yeah, it was. That particular experience was a wonderful experience, but it wasn't intimidating. That's for sure. And working on something like Evil Dead, and, and you kind of hinted at this, you know, it's it's a smaller production. You know, this is a, a young uh, cast and crew, and you know, a lot of the people that worked on this film went on to do amazing things. You know, the Coen Brothers, uh, the Raimis. There's just this whole world of talent that was, you know, in this small cabin, and. There has to be, a, at least I assume, a little bit more of a sense of ownership of something like that as opposed to uh, Word of Honor, which is, again, a CBS production. It's much bigger. You know, you I, you can almost feel like a cog in the wheel, if I were to guess. And this is just, again, me assuming. Uh, but with something like Evil Dead, where you guys are, you know, I know uh, Bruce Campbell helped work on the crew as well as you know, in front of the camera, and there's there's just much more of a familial element uh, with with that production as opposed to you know the, the stuff that you went on to do. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. And remember, there were only five cast members in Evil Dead. Mm -hmm. We were all in our anybody that was part of the crew, and there were only four or five people on the crew because not only Bruce, to his credit, was was part of the crew, but all of us. The other four actors were part of the crew as well on various nights and various days of shooting. Um, and we all had time uh, and not much money invested into it. And so you do feel a little bit... Um, yeah, you do feel a, a, a little bit more of your blood and skin has been left there in Morristown, Tennessee. Um, just because you know, you yourself had to help dig dig the trench and where Linda was going to be laying, or you yourself had to sweep the floor of cabin before we even think that we didn't shoot, or you yourself have to uh, go off in the woods to use the facilities in the middle of the night by yourself if that's what needs to have happened. So, yeah, it's um, there's a lot of investment in different various forms that took place when you're doing a <clears throat> film that that you have such a close connection with from the very beginning, as opposed to, well, we have all the cogs in the wheel are set, but we'd like to hire you as this additional role. And so, you know, you don't have very little say except to express your character. Mm -hmm. It's all good. Two different, two different ways of, of how you look at working on a, on a production. You just turn to Carl Mold and you're just like, hey, uh, are they going to ask us to help the camera? <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> he looks at you like you're crazy. That doesn't happen. Yeah. 
And, and let's talk about Evil Dead for a little bit because, you know, obviously that's, you know, a big part of your career. It, it is a, a huge film that, you know, defined your career in the early portion of, of working in film. And the, and we talked about it a little bit about, you know, the kind of gorilla approach to this. You guys were staying in the cabin. The cabin had no electricity. Um, what were some of the hardest things to do? I, I read something, and you can correct me again if I'm wrong, but that the contact lenses were, you had to take them out every 15 minutes because they were just excruciatingly painful. Yeah, somebody asked me, yes, they were. They actually were very, very hard plastic. They sounded like this. Can you hear that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the sound of tapping to get something that doesn't move and it's very hard. Um, they were called Moira lenses. Um, they were, I actually thought it was five minutes, but uh, people at conventions keep telling me that they read it was 15 minutes, but, but I thought it was five minutes. But regardless, um, and the reason you had to take them out is because, just a little lesson in science here, um, your eyeballs need oxygen to exist. And when you cover them completely with hard plastic, there is no more oxygen reaching those eyeballs and so damage can occur. So we had to take them out, which means we would rehearse something because you cannot see through them whatsoever. It's like putting, a, as I've said before, a, either a coffee saucer into your eye or a Tupperware lid into your eye. You cannot see out of them and they're hard and they're uncomfortable even though they've been fitted at a optometrist's um, office. It's so uncomfortable. And so you rehearse the scene and then you have to do the scene completely blind um, and then you have to stop the scene and take out the lenses and maybe 20 minutes later after your eyes have kind of calmed down and gotten used to the fact that they're now breathing again you do it again. So yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty intense. Um, and there were a couple of times that not only my eyes, but in um, Ellen Sandwise's eyes, who played um, Cheryl. Cheryl, thank you. And um, Sarah York, AKA Teresa Tilly's eyes, who played Sully, that, you know, they would be very, very difficult to take out and remove. And that was, um, that was, Sort of painful sometimes. So yeah, the lenses were a real difficult challenge. And at this point, you're when you're doing this blind. When you're doing any scene, if you're doing a scene sitting and you're having a discussion, that's okay. But if you're doing action scenes and you're doing it blind, um, that's really a, that's that was truly a challenge. Holding a knife and <laughs> I, yeah. I assume you can't see, so that licking the knife sequence had to have been. Fun and yeah, awkward at the same time. Yeah, those kind of things. I think that's what I'm referring to. Yeah. Uh, but at this point, you're you know a, a very young, obviously beautiful actress, and was there was there any kind of uncomfortability of you know because I assume again you're working on these things of they're you know they have a a beauty team that you know, paint up your face for the instructional videos and stuff, but to ugly yourself up with the demon makeup, yeah. is that is that something that you had to kind of make peace with, or was it something that you found fun like Halloween? Uh, no, I would think it was more fun like Halloween, um, to be honest with you. 
you know, once we arrived uh, at our location in Morristown, Tennessee, and we arrived at the cabin that actually, wild, literally, animals had slept inside the cabin, <laughs> lived inside the cabin, therefore we had to clean the cabin of its um, presence, of their mm. presence and gifts that they left inside the cabin. And then uh, realized that, the, you know, the, the conditions that we were in, you, you pretty much left all vanity, you know, in the car. It just, uh, so you did your own makeup, you did your own hair, uh, you scrounged for your own food. I remember we would take our purses and, you know, grab candy bars from the store and just kind of, you know, have them secretly hidden. Uh, and remember back then, quite frankly, you didn't have, in the late 70s, there were no bottles of water. You know, bottled water is a whole new thing from the last 20 or 30 years. But we just didn't go to the store and get cases of bottled water. So that was, you know, quite frankly, hard to come by as well. And we had no running water uh, at the cabin. We actually lived in a different house. We didn't sleep at the cabin. Um, but we actually lived in a house a few miles away, all of us, the, the crew members and the cast, which is a whole other, whole other topic, but whatever. Um, <laughs> um, so, but it was, just, you know, and we constantly say we're not, you know, crying foul, but that was the reality. It, it truly was an empty, um, abandoned cabin in the woods. So everything had to be brought in, uh, even the most, you know, pure lighting cameras, um, places to sit, the furniture, everything that you, everything that you see on that set had to be brought in, and mostly by us and a few crew members. You know, there were, of course, the props and the set design guy, um, who I think was the same person, um, uh, in terms of the largest physical uh, room props. But um, everything had to be brought in by a car, by a van, and that was using the back seat of the trunk. And that's what we did for a few days before filming started. We were just a team, and then we were working together to get this done. And uh, I assume that, you know, obviously you're surrounded by a crew and everything, so there isn't a lot of room for you to get in your own head in terms of being afraid while shooting something like this you know it, it's again i'd said this at the beginning of this, this is one of the scariest films of all time in my personal opinion but was there ever a situation while you were out there that you allowed yourself to kind of be afraid yeah uh, yeah um there were a couple times but it really had nothing so much to do with well yes it did there were a couple of safety issues <laughs> That uh, made some of us a little worried. Um, and that some of, some, a few reassurances by both Sam and Robin Bruce that weren't quite believable. Uh, but we had to go on, on trust and instinct. But there were a couple of times when we clearly heard noises out in the woods, right outside the cabin, um, at night, when we shouldn't have, or that were abnormal. And um, and we heard stories, so absolutely. Um, and you know, you add that onto the fact that you're making a horror movie, and the fact that you're terribly fatigued and kind of out of sync because you are working nights and not days. It, it there were a couple of times, yeah, that we were 
thrown off the loop a little bit. And when you guys finish the production, I'm assuming because you're working in such close quarters, um, relationships develop. Obviously, uh, you and the other ladies are now known as the ladies of Evil Dead, and you've worked together on a couple of different projects. Specifically, I'm talking about Dangerous Women. Um, uh-huh. Is that is that an immediate kind of friendship that's created just kind of through the trials and tribulations of working on something that is so guerrilla? Um, that's a good question. And the answer is no. Actually, when the filming was done, as with a lot of times in any picture or even any stage production or any sort of creative space like that, you go on your way. And some people go to another production, they go back to another uh, job, uh, they have a life, and so you sometimes lose contact. We all lost contact for a couple of years. Then they reached, if you remember, back then, there were no cell phones or computers, so it was really telephone or leaving a phone message or writing a letter. Um, and I had never made it to the premiere because um, uh, I was actually doing auto shows and I was not at home um, when that all happened. But we lost track of each other. Um, we all got married, raised families. Um, and took on different lifestyles. And then about 20 years ago, um, we reconnected. I, I will say that Teresa and I, um, AKA Sarah York, who's telling our main friends, we both moved out to Los Angeles, not together, but we found each other when we moved out to Los Angeles at different times. And um, we became friends. And then again, during a series of situations of getting married, having children, we just lost touch. And then we became uh, reconnected again and then we tracked down Ellen and that was all about 20 years ago so it was a long time of not having any idea where where Rich was um, where Ellen was um, and you know there were t- and how successful Bruce, um, Sam and Rob had become because remember if you are a business um, working or doing other businesses and raising a family you don't really have time to just sit there at night and keep track of everybody else mm-hmm. that you at once worked with so yeah it was a uh, uh, friendship but um, a lot of times of space between um, forming friendships and relationships and then reconnecting and uh, i want to talk kind of briefly you know before getting out of here just in terms of the the idea of you know securing jobs and you know a lot of people have this misconception that you make a you know major motion picture or motion picture that becomes major and then automatically the doors to Hollywood open up for you could you could you clear up some misconceptions in terms of that because I, I feel a lot of the times people think oh well this person was Evil Dead. They're clearly Joe Hollywood now. They they live in a mansion with a giant infinity pool and <laughs> drive a Maserati. Is is, is that? I mean, because the is that know, true? You, yeah, that, yeah, we all do that. You you become a parent and you still have to change diapers. There's there's a reality of what it means. It's this is and and you know this is one of the things that's always interested me because you know. I, I've never interviewed somebody that you know works 
at McDonald's. You know what I mean? I, I've never, I've never asked them. You know, oh, tell me about your first time making a burger. You know what I mean? So the, there's, there's this. I know this is your job, and you know, there's the, the luxurious things that come with working in this industry, working with you know very talented actors, you know, other people in your craft that you admire. But there's also the long, drawn-out hours. Could you just kind of give a little bit of the reality of what this process is? Well, first of all, I want you to know, and it goes down to history, that I actually did work at Dunkin' Donuts, and I also did work at Dairy King in my in my little hometown back in Michigan. And uh, so I did have those jobs, and I treasure them to this day. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we all actually a lot of downtime. There's a lot of um, running and driving to auditions and um, taking an hour and a half to get to an audition and saying three lines and then driving home. And it's, a, it's you know, which I'm not complaining about. There's a lot of downtime. There's a lot of great time. There's a lot of, you know, you still have to do the laundry. You still have to mow the lawn. You still have to unload the dishwasher. And you still have to raise kids mm-hmm. if you have children. So it's a balance and I think a lot of people and and, you know quite frankly it's not just acting or being in the entertainment industry there's just about everyone we all know that is trying to balance you know their life as an occupation in order to make money whether they love their occupation or not um, and trying to balance either having a life or having a family or both and it's hard work today it's really hard and there are long hours of non-gratification, and then there are moments of extreme gratification that make it all worthwhile, whether it's raising kids or, you know, um, working at a profession that you enjoy. And I think it's a real gift to people who can, who have the ability to work at a profession that they love and that they enjoy. Um, not everybody does, and I think it's a real thing to be able to do that. This amazing answer. Um, I know that you've found your way back to music, uh, just kind of in your travels, and I'm gonna I'm gonna put you in the position now where I'm gonna make you name your favorite child. Which is it that you prefer most? Singing, working on the stage, or working in front of a camera? <laughs> That's a growl sound. Yeah, oh, I know. (laughs) I'm married. I know what that sound is. I think and I really have to put one before the other, right? Uh, um, If if you can. I know that it's hard to... Oh, great. Good. Um, Well, I'll tell you this. I really, really enjoy when I have the opportunity, which again is, is not all the time, but when I have the opportunity to work in front of a camera, I think it's really fascinating because you're working in such a small space and you have such a limited area to express something. I think that's really an interesting challenge. Um, I I love the stage because of the discipline that you have to have in terms of doing something on stage exactly the same way in a different way, sometimes eight times a week. Um, And I do enjoy singing, and I love what singing does to people, whether they're in their 90s or whether they're six years old. 
I love what singing um, can do to people's emotions. But I would have to say, if I had to put one in front of the other, it would probably be singing about a theatrical career in front of a camera. How's that? Perfect answer. Uh, see, it wasn't that. It wasn't that painful. <laughs> So, last thing I want to ask you about, and then I'll I will let you uh, get back with your life because I know I've taken up a bit of your time. Um, I I saw something, and I know that this was released around the time of Ash vs Evil Dead, and it was a short fan film that you had done called Auntie Linda's Bake Off. Yeah. Can you tell me about how that how you were approached for that, and you know how fun it was to kind of re-enter that world well it was really fun it's actually um uh written and directed and produced by mike calio who is an old old friend um he's not old but he is an old friend of bruce's and we became friends um during our early all three of us ladies became friends of his during um the early convention years and mm. we remained friends and he came to me and said hey I, i've got this little thing i want to do and i and i want to send it to Stanford Bruce and Rod and, you know, because I've been working on a lot of films, this is Mike talking, and a lot of writing, and um, done a lot of stuff, but I, I, I want to show them, and he said, you know, it would, it would involve a little takeoff of, of Linda as an older woman, um, you know, who everybody thinks around her is normal, except she's not, so he wrote the whole script, and we did it on a Saturday, on a Saturday. Um, and it turned out pretty cute. I mean, it was it's really well done. And again, for really, really, really no budget and expense, um, I thought Mike did a really good job of it. I, I, I think it's only about, what, four, five, six, maybe nine, ten minutes long? It's seven I'm not minutes sure, long. It's, it's great, seven, by the way. You know, um, I knew if I said some number there, it was going But um, it had a really great yeah, I, I had a real fun time watching it. I actually am going to reshare it kind of in preparation to releasing this episode because I really enjoy it. And it's, it's you know, with them doing the Ash vs. the Evil Dead program, you know, I was hoping that they would tap you guys at least in some way to kind of come back. I know that Ellen uh, did a, a bit as Cheryl on the show, and, you know, it's just... It's exciting to see, you know, the callbacks to this world. I know you worked with Sam on the Oz film that he did, you know, so being able to kind of play in that sandbox again it, from a fan's perspective is really kind of a rewarding thing. And so it's it's one of those things that I, I'm just giddy that exists for us to be able to consume. Yeah, I think that was one of my main intentions as well, that if, uh, as people that continue, um, that there were creative moments, um, outside of the main production crew that, um, might be able to be tapped. And, and I know that's what Mike was thinking of and hoping for, and I, and I was hoping for that for Mike, and, um, uh, this particular stage it didn't happen, but who knows? happen in the future and to speak about the future um now is the time that i'd love for you to kind of plug some things you have 
on the fire and places that people can see you. I know that you guys, the ladies of Evil Dead, will be at Sinister Creature Con, and I believe that's October 12th and 13th, at the uh-huh. Scottish Rite Center in Sacramento. So please tell people where they can find you guys, uh, social media or otherwise. Yeah, we, um, uh, you can, uh, IMDb, any of us, uh, IMDb.com, and just type in our names, Betsy Baker, and you can see me there, and, and it has uh, film and TV credits there. You can go on, we're on Facebook as the Ladies of the Evil Dead, and so you can always communicate with us that way. We are going to be in Sacramento. We're going to be at Children's Theater at the end of October in um, New Jersey. And we're always doing uh, a few conventions um, throughout the United States, actually even in Europe. Um, and we'll always announce those on, on our Facebook page. Um, and uh, or you can go to my Facebook page as well. And aren't you going to be on Shameless this fall? I am going to be in a small recurring role in the ninth season. Gosh, can you believe that? Ninth season of Shameless, which was a blast to work on. Um, I'm going to be on Shameless, and I'm also currently, um, this summer, um, in a small spring role on the HBO series Sharp Objects with Amy Adams. Which is an which, amazing um, show for women. Definitely should be checking that out. Anybody that's listening to this, uh, definitely yeah, check out Sharp Objects. Yeah, it's an exciting show. Uh, yeah, got a lot of concerns, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been a huge honor. If you guys are here just because you've seen that Betsy was on the show, but you've enjoyed the conversation, want to find out more about us, you can do that in a couple of different ways. You start by liking us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash CreaturePod, by following us on Twitter and Instagram at CreaturePod. Again, Betsy, I can't even begin to express to you how big of a deal this was for me. Uh, you've been so kind in our conversations and setting this up you, you know you're you're one of the good ones kid and i really appreciate you being a part of this and i just can't thank you enough well you're very kind larry and you've, uh, you've made my day as well so uh, by saying all those kind things and it's been a pleasure and i hope everybody does go to I dude, <laughs> I I gotta get out of here before I start a uh, little boy crying. Uh, so, <laughs> with that being said, uh, for Betsy Baker and for myself again, my name is Chunky. This has been another episode of the Creature Features Podcast on GeeksOfTheIndustry.com, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Listen with someone you trust. Perfect. Thank you so much.
Destructor. 